please do not turn off. Please do not. Just do not exit the podcast. Just stay in the podcast. Please listen carefully. Hi, everybody, and welcome in to the Off the Top of My Head podcast, a podcast just about anything and everything. I find interesting people with interesting topics and record in interesting places, and it's all off the top of my head. So whatever you're doing right now, thank you for bringing me with you. And now, let's get in to today's episode. This podcast is sponsored by VT Photography. VT Photography brings over 19 years of photography experience, venturing on long hikes, capturing the still of pre-dawn, and enduring inclement weather. VT Photography brings you beautiful images of our national parks and beyond. Images are available on the VT Photography website, and all prints are available printed, matted, framed, and ready to hang. These prints adorn the walls of homes, businesses, retail spaces, and also make a great gift. Visit vtphotography.zenfolio.com. That's vtphotography.zenfolio.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome into this episode of the Off the Top of My Head podcast. My name is Bill. Thank you so much for downloading this episode. We welcome you into episode number, oh, I don't know, whatever it is. I'm not even quite sure I lost count. (laughs) So... (laughs) I am here with a special guest today, and uh, as I told you on my last podcast, this is a a topic that I think some people may be afraid to talk about, um, a topic that um, people may may be afraid to admit that they're affected by or a family member is affected by. And uh, I, I also mentioned on my last podcast that I purposely did not do any research for this. I didn't research who you are, um, and I didn't also uh, research really much about uh, the topic because I just want the conversation to be pretty organic. So, But I am here with J.D. Stahl. J.D., welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, and this is your first podcast, I understand. That's correct. All right. That's awesome. I love it. I appreciate you being a guest. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, J.D. works for the Recovery Centers of America, and uh, describe your role there, J.D. Well, I get the very fun job of being a treatment advocate. Now, that sounds like a twisted uh, way of saying salesperson for the facility, but really what I do is educate. And if uh, anybody that is in treatment or has been in treatment or is in the field of healthcare knows that uh, there's a lot of stigma around addiction, which is one of the biggest barriers to people finding treatment. So one of the cool parts of what I do is going around and educating, mm-hmm. which of course is the enemy of stigma and ignorance. Sure, sure. Um, I used to be a high school teacher for eight years at Boyertown High School, and um, since then I've gone through my own personal journey with addiction and have done a lot of research and taken a lot of schooling to understand more about the um, biological, uh, psychological, and spiritual effects uh, that addiction would take on. Mm-hmm. So what impresses me, JD, is again, we don't know each other very well. We had a very brief conversation when we were first introduced. Mm-hmm. Um, but what impresses me is the fact that you did have a personal journey with this. And now you're able to overcome that one. Mm-hmm. And then two, advocate for the awareness of it. So are you able to go back a little bit and kind of tell us about the past a little bit or? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so 
what I usually do, and again, I've, I've run groups on this too, is um, part of my history is that, I, you know, as human beings, we're all slaves to, slaves to fulfillment. Um, mine being somewhat of a lack of purpose or a lack of feeling as if I was good enough in my life, uh, always feeling different and never really feeling as if I was able to connect with other people on a certain level. Uh, just that, that voice inside of us that uh, says, nobody really knows me, nobody understands, nobody cares. Well, that one was very loud for me. Uh, and I grew up in a very supportive household, but yet I, I still felt so much distance between myself and everybody and everything else for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So I felt like uh, everybody else was happy. They were working, they were doing everything. And so I did the same thing, but really that there was a hole inside of me that I, that I couldn't fill because I wasn't paying enough attention to myself. I was doing a lot of trying to please other people and, you know, in between giving up with trying to do that, making everybody happy with me, trying to smooth everything over and um, be the good guy, I, I ran into the fact that I didn't really have control over that. And when you don't have control over whether or not people validate you, 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 you know, you turn to something because mm -hmm. the validation itself can be addictive. You can ask anybody that goes into alone time or feels disconnected from somebody in a relationship or in a family there, there mm -hmm. there's that disconnect causes a withdrawal and it's painful sure um, so feeling that on a more <clears throat> a larger level for me was very difficult and to manage those symptoms myself I chose to pick up something that I did have control of and for as long as it could possibly go on I used drugs and alcohol to control that feeling one or the other didn't really matter and if I didn't feel uh, substantiated in the drugs or the alcohol then then I would use uh, activities or I'd use the internet or I would use whatever I could in order to find that validation that I wasn't getting from the world or wasn't getting enough of from the world mm -hmm. so and with that you know it, it became a lack of purpose okay so how, so how long what period of time or how long did this go on for? Well, honestly, the way I look at addiction and the way I look at substance use is um, not just with the illegal substances. It's, it's with everything else. It you know, starts at the point of trauma or, or emotional neglect. Uh, so I would say, because I used to be overweight as a kid, so I would you know, eat my feelings away. And then you know, I went into high school and then I was distracted by trying to make everybody like me and you know, went into the social validation thing. And um, as soon as I was basically 18 because I didn't drink too much in high school uh, so it wasn't because I was a necessarily a partier um, but uh, I I be pick up picked up drinking when I was in college and you know it was more socially acceptable and it was more readily available to do so so I, I started then and I realized wow you know I have a lot more confidence uh, a lot of my pain is going away I, this feels right there's something about this that's being rewarded you know, mm -hmm. and of course it was chemically. Mm -hmm. So uh, as soon as I got to college and started drinking on pretty much a regular basis and found a home and a solace in that, I, uh, you know, it's like having a child, you throw your arms around and you say, I'm never going to let you go. Mm -hmm. So, it, so is that, so, <laughs> so many questions, Go for it. <laughs> so yeah. many questions. Um, 
do other people see this happening around you? And if they did, did somebody try to throw a flag on it? Or was were other people, were your peers encouraging it because they thought, hey, you were this college guy and you were partying and having mm-hmm. a good time? And you know, did they see that it was something a little bit deeper? I think some of the people, like I had roommates in college um, that were very good friends of mine, they saw that there was a disconnect. Um, I never really watched sports or cared too much about sports. I, I, I liked art. I liked music, you know, connecting with emotions. But so there w- they just kind of probably saw it as, oh, he's just different because he doesn't have a lot in common with most people. Mm. But as far as seeing a problem, it's really tough because what one person would describe as excess, another one describes as um, not even just accepted but promoted. I mean, alcoholism is the one thing you know the one drug that people do that they have to explain why they don't do it as opposed to why they do mm-hmm. I mean and that's just twisted it's so part of an integral part of our society that you're strange if you don't use this drug mm-hmm. and you know people that have pain emotional physical spiritual pain they're gonna go to this they're gonna go to something that takes that pain away and uh, you know, like I said, we're all slaves to fulfillment, and it just comes down to uh, a lot of the a lot of this comes down to uh, finding something that'll take that pain away. Mm-hmm. So, at what point did you recognize? Was it you that recognized, or was it somebody else that made you aware? Well, it's difficult. It it, it got to a point where I think I saw the looks in other people's eyes. I've always been able to drink way more than most people and still maintain some sort of level of decorum and self-control while I was doing it. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a blackout guy. I didn't get angry. I didn't, you know, wreck things. I didn't excessively cry or, or whatever. I, I, I could drink just as much, if not more, and, and still be the babysitter for the group, mm. um, which allowed it to go on longer because it didn't bring up any issues. Sure. I, I had a full-time job at school. I still got good grades. Nothing was a problem, but I just didn't stop. Hmm. Um, so getting back to kind of the original question here is, um, like, I'm sorry, what was the original question? Yes, yeah, so, you know, at, at what point, at what oh, point what did or who made you aware? Yeah. Right. So uh, it wasn't necessarily a problem. Um, and I grew up, my grandfather was a big influence on my life, and he was an alcoholic, and I never saw him that. And even though he died of cirrhosis when I was 18, I was never told that, you know, he died of cirrhosis because he had a drinking problem. I just saw a happy, pleasant person who drank all the time as being my role model. It was okay. Um, But it got to the point, until I was 33, which is when I went to treatment, it got pretty much all the way through then. Um, but when you have tolerance and tolerance increases constantly, you can drink a half a gallon of vodka every day and say, you know what, I still feel sad. Let me add something else to this. Mm -hmm. And then you add something else to that until the tolerance increases for that. And then you add something else and something else. You just keep throwing dirt on the sinkhole and it's never going to get filled. Mm -hmm. So it got to a point where I couldn't maintain it financially and I wasn't working. And there were a lot of the negative side effects that went along with it. It just, uh, I, I wasn't happy and I realized that I needed help. And up until I was 33, I didn't know anything about 
um, rehab. I just thought it was something that Amy Winehouse sung on a song once. <laughs> I didn't realize, yeah. you know, that Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous or any anonymous existed uh, until I got sober. I don't know if it from this area, a lack of <clears throat> lack of information available, or what. I just didn't see it because uh, there's a lot of suppression. I think in 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 this area specifically, and pe- people have a, see the problem with heroin, or people see the problem with alcohol, and the unfortunate and uncomfortable truth is that a lot of people validate their addictions by ignoring the problem in others. Mm-hmm. That's very dangerous. Well, I grew up drink. You know, my dad grew up drinking. You know, every night. Uh, you know, a six pack or a twelve pack every night. And he got up and he went to work and he provided. He does. He did that. So that's okay. Right. That seemed normal to you. That seemed yeah. normal, uh, even though my my parents didn't drink a lot. But yeah, that that was the norm. As long as you got up and went to work, you could do whatever you wanted. Now the insurance company says if you have more than fourteen drinks a week. You technically require a, a, a medically assisted detox level of care. You're hmm. technically an alcoholic if you drink more than 14 drinks a week for more than three or four weeks. Okay. You could possibly die from stroke. And when you tell people that, their eyes get big because they realize, I know a lot of people that are drinking more than that. Yeah, or, or all of a sudden maybe they're adding it up in their head. They're like, hey, a drink or two at night, a glass of wine, bourbon, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. They add it up in their heads and they realize, wow, you know, there at one point I was technically an alcoholic. Now, why am I able to manage this? And then they start to question like, oh, have I been or have I just never stopped for more than a month? And I just maintain this because up until like uh, in between, if you go more than 10 days, then it's more out of your system. Mm-hmm. But everything else in there is you're just managing it. Um, so there's a lot of major details that really opened my eyes with um, you know, brain circuitry. And I don't want to get too deep into this quite yet. But, um, but yeah, so it, it's difficult to identify a problem when most people aren't necessarily looking at the correct definition mm-hmm. of what a problem is or what it consists of. Right. So, so at what point you said you went to rehab, mm-hmm. right? So tell me what that looked like for you. Is, was it a specific place? Was it a specific person that helped guide you through? Absolutely. Um, I had friends uh, that were scared for me because the amount of you know, drugs and alcohol I was taking was just so, so much. Like uh, you know, to get to a point where you're just maintaining it, it was, and uh, it, was just, it was just way too much of everything because I was, you know, not fulfilled. Mm -hmm. But it got to a point where I just said, you know, I don't have any more energy. All I'm doing is waking up in order to look forward to having a drink or to doing a drug that's my entire life. I have no other purpose than that. And, uh, you know, some of my friends said, you know, maybe you need some help. Mm -hmm. And I was, in contrast to a lot of others, I think I was a fairly easy case. Uh, My parents even did call an uh, interventionist, his name was Jay Utes. He actually passed. He, he was actually one of the founders of Recovery Centers of America. Amazing person. Saved many lives. If you know, I could be anything like him, that would be an absolute blessing to me. Mm-hmm. But um, he came in and he just said uh, three words. He said, are you ready? I said, yep, let's go. 
and uh, bag was already packed and I went out the door. He took me to Malvern Institute mm-hmm. and checked in there. Okay. And uh, from from then on, it was just because I was beaten down. I was tired. Also, and, I was going to say, I mean, do you yeah. feel, you know, just the fact that when he asked you that question, are you, are you ready? And you said yes. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like your process is a little bit or was a little bit easier than others? Yes, I had I had many years of going through the denial already, mm. um, and I was extremely fortunate enough to have the support system that I do, uh, where I was able to hit the rock bottom by myself. Because if you know you meet somebody with opposition when they're not ready for something, they're going to meet you with the same amount. Sure. And uh, whereas somebody could unravel to you and say, you know what, look, I'm ready. If someone's screaming at you, you need to be ready. You're going to find every way to fight them just because you're doing the drugs, you're drinking in order to have control. Mm-hmm. And if somebody's going to try to take that away from you, yeah, you're going to fight for it. Right. It's well, like it's your child. Yeah. You know, the rules are out the door. So what's the period of time that actually you actually go through like a detox? I'm, I'm sure it's different for everybody based mm-hmm. on their scenario, but what would be maybe like a typical time frame? Okay. Chemically, uh, let's see. I mean, I could tell you basically what the time range was in treatment because prior to being a treatment advocate, I worked in uh, utilization review, which means I negotiated treatment lengths of stay between the company, the rehabilitation center and the insurance company so I had a lot of insurance companies basically saying this is what's required and seeing a lot of cases where what you know what actually happened and what was done Um, but so to answer the question it it varies of course for different levels and for different drugs and and everything but let's say for example somebody comes in and they've been drinking for the past 10 years uh, let's say 10 to 15 years and they've been drinking a six pack to a 12 pack a night they're gonna go through uh, a medically assisted detox and that is going to cl- include something a medication called Cirax, which is basically a benzodiazepine uh, that is going to take away the possibility of stroke So it's going to help with that transition because if you rip the uh, that if you rip alcohol out of the person's body, the levels of GABA is going to fluctuate so much that you're going to get the shakes. Which is why if you drink excessively the night before, Mm -hmm. you you're kind of shaky the next day. You stutter a little bit. You have this brain fog. It's it's your levels of neurotransmitters uh, re-leveling and finding homeostasis again. So. Um, but in extreme amounts, it could send you into a stroke and same thing with say Xanax, but, uh, that is going to last about five to seven days, you know, depending on the amounts, of Mm -hmm. course, and I I gave you a bit of a range, but it also depends on your history. If you do have more of a propensity for stroke, if you had DTs in the past, that's going to play a factor. If you have other issues or diabetes or your age is also going to play a part Uh, they're also going to do blood work to see what your liver enzyme levels are and if they are high it's it's more of a possibility Um, so 
about five to seven days for alcohol. Okay. Um, usually five to seven days is the normal detox. And that's just to get the substances out of your system. That's the physical withdrawal, which can still kind of taper on, which we call post-acute withdrawal symptoms. They can still go on for up to six months. Okay. So, but for alcohol, not to scare anybody that's listening, um, you start to feel yourself after that five to seven day period when, when the substance is actually leaving your system. Okay. And then you could start to work on the therapy um, or the psychological portion of it. Mm-hmm. Because once you've taken away your, your basically your comfort blanket, you haven't necessarily experienced anything that is going to challenge you to reach out for your coping mechanism. So then you kind of need to throw darts at yourself to see what's going to make you reach out for it again and then address that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, again, absolutely combining it. I mean, there's a lot of people that do come in for detox only, and I would absolutely suggest that they stay for, for additional therapy because otherwise you're going into a world, it, it's, you, you're taking off all your armor, and then you know somebody's sending you into battle and saying, don't use your armor. Yeah. You got to learn how to build your own. You know what I mean? Yeah, you got to have a little bit of adjustment period. So, is the is the uh, drug portion of the detox obviously different than alcohol? Does uh, it run similar? Uh, it can be. Again, longevity of use is going to play a factor. Uh, heroin with, heroin withdrawal is uh, it, it, it's basically the worst flu that you've ever had in the world, uh, packed into a forty eight hour period. Uh, and you know that's very uncomfortable hot and cold hot and cold your skin doesn't feel like it's necessarily yours it just feels like you're wearing a suit a, a wet suit basically and when you want your skin to be cool it's hot when you want your skin to be hot it's cool I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's a very uncomfortable feeling because uh, you've been taking something to regulate your body temperature and your your dopamine and which is you know your pleasure center of your brain so Restabilizing yourself after doing that is going to send you into a bit of uh, a mess. So they do a taper uh, of buprenorphine for about five to seven days as well, depending on your use. And that will take away some of the severe withdrawal symptoms that you're going to be experiencing. Uh, there'll be some stomach discomfort, but it's not going to be writhing and moaning mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, gritting of the teeth and all that other stuff that, that uh, you would go through without, without it. It's going to be a lot more tolerable. And uh, I, I've seen a lot of people go through it. I've seen people go through it without anything, and it's rough to watch. I've seen them go through it with something, and it's, it's somewhat uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge difference in the way the medication really helps the, the withdrawal. Um, it, and that's a big deal. Uh, methamphetamines, you're going to go through a lot of withdrawal as well. Not as severe, um, but you're going to be extremely tired. You're going to be extremely lethargic. And with all of these substances, because it plays with your pleasure center and sure. your reward center, you're going to go through a depression slash what they call anhedonia, which is uh, the failure to receive pleasure out of everyday things. So it's just your brain getting back to its normal levels again, mm-hmm. and that's a normal that's a normal part. 
uh, when, when you mess with your chemistry, the chemistry has to reset and it's going to send things into whack. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, and that can mess with you too. It can make you think like you're not doing the right thing because chemically that's what you're interpreted to believe. Right. So, so during this whole process, you obviously have to surround yourself with people who, you know, are professionals mm -hmm. and who have seen this before and have been through this before. So Absolutely. now that now that somebody's through the detox phase, I'm sure there's a lot of nuances in between there. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, and I, don't, I certainly don't want to, you know, glance over the um, the difficulty of getting through that and, and some of that information. But once we're through the de detox phase, what happens next? Is that when we start rehab? Yep. Uh, well, uh, assuming that you're physically able to attend groups or to talk about your issue while you're sick, um, they will continue. You have be, you know, it's encouraged to participate and work through things as much as you can to distract yourself from the physical ailments that you're going through. Uh, but after the detox is completed, yes, you transition into a residential level of care, which um, usually happens within the same facility, and that's inpatient as well, and you stay overnight, and uh, you're medically monitored by nursing staff to make sure that you may or may not need comfort meds. You have muscle aches, they'll give you stuff for muscle aches. You have headaches, they'll give you something for that. Something for restless legs they have. They have... Uh, the whole gamut of you know, over-the-counter and some prescription medications that you may need. So, so at this point, are you talking to other patients in the facility? You are absolutely are you uh, participating uh, in the milieu, of course, with other patients and, and, and staff members, and you're able to share how you feel. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the staff and the other patients can, can help guide you through it. So how important during this time is... Um, diet like what what you eat because I know you're already laughing did I ask a good question oh yeah this is uh I'm, I'm a I'm a self-titled nutritionist I guess you could say um, but yeah I diet and nutrition is absolutely huge for anybody because uh, I use the analogy it's about baking a cake so when you're doing drugs you, you're basically you're buying cake boxes right and the cake boxes, you just add a couple of things and throw it in the oven and you got yourself a cake. Your brain makes its own cake from scratch. And eventually, it forgets how to make a cake. Mm. It forgets how much baking powder, how much sugar, how much flour, in what order do you mix these things. It doesn't remember how to do that. Um, and when you're with nutrition, in order to be able to get the right ingredients for your brain to make dopamine and serotonin and norepinephrine, all of those things that are important with your mood and how you feel and even how you look at yourself, um, it's important to make sure you have the right ingredients. You're not going to get the right ingredients from you know a microwave dinner or you know, a McDonald's bag. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you're just not. You know, garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. So. It's really important if you want a fast recovery, and that's what I was gung-ho about when I got out. I wanted the most ideal thing that I could do in order to speed up this feeling of not feeling good ever again. Mm -hmm. So I, I did the research. I tried to look up as much as I could, and diet is huge because you're trying to get the right ingredients. Mm -hmm. 
You know, okay. everybody's bought something, a, a car or electronic equipment with bad parts in it, and it just breaks. Because I, because I've also heard that sugar obviously is addictive, mm-hmm. right? So, if you're coming off of and maybe have that addictive type. I don't even want to say it's personality because that's mm-hmm. probably not an accurate um, word to use. I don't know. Is it an accurate word? If you, somebody, does somebody have an addictive personality or addictive tendencies? Sure. Is that... for, yeah, for the purposes of this, yeah, okay. yeah absolutely. Okay. So that, that sugar is that. So if somebody is in the process of recovering mm-hmm. and they're looking at their diet, are they eliminating sugar or does sugar still play a part in that? Um, a lot of people don't yet. Um, when you're when you gave up your main coping mechanism um, your tendency is to lean on the next one and then the next one and the next one say somebody gives up alcohol and uh, they say they come out and they say all right I've given up alcohol and then they but instead they're trading it in for um, two packs of cigarettes and and sugar and coffee and social media and pornography and you know um, gossiping and all this other stuff they have they're still trying to supplement themselves but they're just not using the one that's causing the main issue Mm -hmm. you know it's like saying i used to get you know 10 deliveries through through uh you know illegal means here but now i'm just getting you know 10 different people coming through the front door Mm -hmm. you know what i mean Gotcha. So it, it gets to a point and, you know, it can get obsessive, too, to look at everything in your entire reality as a coping mechanism. Like, yeah, but um, we negotiate our own over the counter sobriety. And I think that's important to recognize for people that everything is an either focus on ourselves or it's a temporary distraction or coping mechanism away from ourselves whether it be even exercise, whether it be um, spirituality, whether it be food, whether it be anything, uh, whatever gets us closer to our ideal selves is probably the best way to cope. But through that, you have to fight the current that you've created for so many years, Mm -hmm. and that causes pain. And that's what's daunting about this you know, self-work and shadow work and personal change is that there's a lot of pain with just finding yourself. Yeah, and for and everybody's everybody's level or everybody's path is different. Absolutely. Some might have more resistance. Someone might have less resistance. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So you're in the process of recovering. Yeah. Um, you're mixing with staff. You're mixing with fellow patients. You're getting an opportunity to express yourself. You're working on your diet what again everybody's time frame is different so then what happens once you you feel or the people around you feel that you're ready to uh, move on or go to the next step what does that look like do you maybe continue to help people who are in the facility with you or do you now enter back into society where you're able to start over again and start making your own choices and basically relieving yourself of what what the past was Okay, well, the usual length of stay is, is 30 to 40 days, which is our continuum of care at RCA. But there's a reason why you know, that 30-day model has been a, uh, has been a benchmark. You know, it's a, it says it takes you know, 28 days to form a habit, 
and you know that's kind of right. Mm -hmm. It also takes the same amount of time to get out of a habit. Mm -hmm. um, and practicing that for a four-week cycle is, is usually an ideal way to set yourself up for going in the opposite direction of that current. Mm -hmm. um, but it, in reality, a lot of it comes down to you know finance or insurance approval, and you know as the position that I used to have, we, we do everything that we can, I know for sure, uh, in order to be able to give you that option. Now, what usually decides when you're ready is uh, a few factors. Uh, your level of acceptance um, or comfortability with, uh, with everything that's going on. Uh, people with more resistance, as you said earlier, are probably going to need a little bit more time. Um, the difficult part about this is that we spend our time gripping onto things and validating them or gripping onto other people that allow us to validate those things. Because the, one of the scariest things that a human being can look at is realizing that, you know, they spent so much time doing something that was wrong. Hmm. Whether it be a belief system or idealizing a specific person or... Um, choosing an activity that distracted themselves from their own true potential or whatever. Most people, or not most people, I said some people would rather cling to that lie than to tell themselves they possibly wasted their time. Hmm. That's huge. And sure. that's what people run from. And that's why people validate other people's substance use because they don't want to look at that on, on their own. Hmm. Or that's why they... People have to explain why they're not drinking as opposed to why they do. Mm -hmm. And that is probably the biggest part of stigma is that there's a lot of strong individuals out there that, that may not want to question their previous choices because at this time they're comfortable. Mm -hmm. It's like saying, you have a million dollar house. How about you, you, know, you move out into a box for a couple of months? Mm -hmm. And that there's a possibility you could go into a better house. Possibility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not guarantee. Not guarantee. Possibility. Uh, most people are going to say, get out of my house. I'm staying here. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's, it's really scary to take that leap of faith. Um, but that's exactly what it is. Yeah. How much time do we spend uh, escaping or focusing on something else so we don't have to look inside? And there's a lot of self-discovery that happens during that period of admitting that you're powerless over something or some things in your life, mm -hmm. which is why it's the first step of the 12 step program, right? Admitting that you're powerless to your own ego. Mm -hmm. So as you were coming out of, um, recovery, mm -hmm. what was your integration back into what you wanted to accomplish? What was that like for you? Was that did you find that, again, I don't think this whole process is easy, but it's, I guess for some it's easier than others, but did you find it easier I because you were so, you were so vulnerable and open in the beginning? Did you find it easier for you or was it difficult? Uh, I think if I am going to play the comparison game to other people, I found it easier. I was so tired and I... Not only that, I had support. Uh, I didn't have to go back to a place where somebody was selling drugs as my neighbor or in my house. Some people go back to family members that are substance users that are 
that are sick, that want them to drink to validate their own stuff, that want them to be sick so that, you know, they can still play this I'm, you know, over you game, um, which is, you know, another big thing too. But I felt it, mine was easy. I was tired. I was just happy to not be in jail by something I thought I was controlling. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like all, I, I was a prisoner of war for so many years and then all of a sudden I got out. Mm -hmm. And it's like, wow, this, this is fantastic. I'm never going back again. Mm -hmm. I mean, I came home and, um, uh, from rehab and I had a beer in my fridge for an entire year and I just laughed at it every time I opened, <laughs> the, uh, opened the fridge door. I did not want any parts of that yeah. because that meant going back in chains again. Right. Um, so uh, you, you use that beer as kind of like a symbol that you, like you said, you don't want to go back there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So then what, so tell me how you got to what you're doing now with the recovery centers of America uh, or am I missing any, am I missing stuff in between? If I'm missing stuff, go ahead and fill in the blanks. Um, to add to the end of that, um, I did go to treatment. I did relapse. Um, it was over a year afterwards and, uh, that was essential part of my recovery. I'm not saying that relapse should be a part of everybody's story, but I was making exceptions. I thought I had this, you know, it was easier at the beginning. Absolutely, I felt great. And then I started to get back in every everyday life. I didn't, I was still thinking that drugs and alcohol were my addiction. And at that point, I didn't realize that my addiction stemmed from that lack of fulfillment. Um, it wasn't to a point where I was in a relationship and I, I that fell apart and then I basically um, I fell apart mm -hmm. uh, so I, you know being finding that codependency piece in addiction to in addition to the substance use was also you know an extremely helpful part of my recovery I, I realized that it wasn't the drugs and alcohol that I was you know necessarily addicted to but that it came well I was but is that it came from that lack of fulfillment that lack of purpose that feeling as if all I am good for is for somebody else and if I can't get that then what what purpose of it is so this is this just underscores how volatile this whole process could be oh absolutely because I had no I, you know here I am I'm ready to glance over saying hey good for you JD you know you did it you get it and here you're telling me in between now, you had a relapse a, yep. a year later. So, yeah. yeah, the situation is is quite volatile. Mm -hmm. And I guess every day, you just, it has to be a fresh start, right? Every day, you have to recommit yourself. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, having received so much validation for the things that I did most of my life, in early sobriety, as you're getting better, there's a lot of validation there. Mm -hmm. Because people are just happy that you're not actively killing yourself. Mm-hmm. And when that started to taper off, that was like, you know, a drug supply getting cut off. I had to look for something else. What really happened is that I had to rely on me for my own happiness. That was the scary part. Mm -hmm. what's, it, what's it like for you to tell this story now? Uh, it's, I've, honestly, I've said it a, a lot of times, but... It's really freeing for me to, to talk about it to and you know I've written about it online and and different and uh, presented it in different groups but it's very freeing 
uh, every time that I put something out there uh, that is extremely honest, it usually opens somebody's eyes and they say, me too, me too. And that was that me too voice was what I heard in my own head in rehab that really made me turn around hmm. is hearing that I wasn't completely alone and that someone was just as quote unquote messed up as I was. And it wasn't that I was, you know, messed up at all. It's that we all have to admit that we're all hungry for love. We're all hungry for acceptance. We want to be understood, even though we may never fully be understood. We all want to be loved for who we are. Mm -hmm. And we test that. And kids test that by, with the teenage angst. They, they feel as if there's conditions on their love. They feel as if, if I do this, then you're not going to love me. So I'm going to push that envelope. I want to see if you'll still love me if I completely screw up my life to see if what you're saying is true. Hmm. And they will go to the end of the world testing that until they see it in somebody's eyes. Somebody can whisper it. Somebody can yell that I love you, I accept you. But until they feel it mm -hmm. coming from that individual with the utmost sincerity, they're going to push a button and say, there's an exception there because I can see it in your eyes. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to find it because I want to believe in something that's that unconditional and that pure. Mm -hmm. Because for some people, that is the purpose that they're here. And just find that. And, and everybody's definition is different. Absolutely. Every, everybody has a different level of what acceptance they want from another human being or mm -hmm. want from a situation. So, yeah. Um, okay. So, you finished going through your relapse. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, take me from there. Uh, after that didn't last very long, honestly. After that, I was just, uh, went to the doctor. I didn't go back into rehab. Um I caught it, I did some outpatient, and then uh, tried to get off of everything as, basically as fast as I could because I was tired of just taking and I wanted to give back, which is kind of the necessary ingredient to have that spiritual awakening is to be part of service as well. Mm -hmm. I, I always felt like I had uh, an ability to verbalize my own emotions to other people about my situation or to be completely honest without um, necessarily having fear of that vulnerability. I was always made to feel comfortable talking exactly about what I felt in my family and not feeling judged for it. And I think from that came uh, the idea of wanting to really help people in my journey, with my journey, and help other people say that they're not alone either. Mm -hmm. And really, I was made to feel safe growing up, no matter what I did. And I think that was the most beautiful gift anybody could have ever felt, to live their lives and feel such safety from judgment, safety from harm, safety from abandonment. And, you know, I just grew up saying, I really want somebody else to feel this way, to see just how amazing that this feeling is. So I... I tried to go out there and you know start groups and and do different things and I you know at that time when I came out of treatment I was landscaping for a few years which was great um, I really enjoyed being outside and staying active and that helped me get my body back in shape too which is an essential part of recovery uh, my my um, diet was cleaned up which is also like we said an essential part and going to 
outpatient treatment in addition to that was, you know, helping my mind. And now I just realized that, wow, I really want to give back. That's kind of the final piece in this. So I started applying for jobs at treatment centers uh, or counseling centers. And eventually, lucky for me, uh, I was able to get a job at the, the call center, the admissions center from Malvern Institute, where I had actually gone to treatment. Um, and I worked there for about a year. And at that point, learned a lot about different people calling in and talking about finances and doing authorizations and getting verifications for insurance after not really knowing anything much about insurance going into this and then uh, working there for a year, learning the ins and outs of insurance and what's necessary and what the costs are and how the treatment goes and the different things to expect. Different. Uh, people to be addicted to or want to talk about or not want to talk about the whole thing mm -hmm. um, and then from there I was offered by uh, Jay Utes uh, actually who did my intervention he told me to go apply at RCA uh, this was pretty much uh, right before he passed and uh, I went and interviewed at RCA and found my second family there um, just an amazing group of people, and I am so happy to be working with them. Um, all of them, like I said, it's a second family. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I walked in there, they, um, they train you, they take care of you, and it's, you know, it's basically, I, I really felt together there. The, a lot of people that I work with, basically everybody that I work with is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And they really care. They all care because 70% of them are in recovery too. Yeah. I, w I was going to ask that very question is that have they been through the same thing? Because mm -hmm. they often say that, that experience is the best teacher. Absolutely. Right. So when you went into that call center, you could really relate to what those people on the other end were going through. And you were using your knowledge along with whatever policies and procedures to help kind of guide them through that scenario. And then again, for you to take that experience now and translate it into, into what you're doing at RCA, I think just lends to the entire package of where you were year, years ago and where you are now. I mean, it's a, it's a process, right? It didn't happen overnight. This is a period of how long, would you say? How many? Um, since I, I, I got out of treatment 2013. Um, there you go. So we're at least, yeah. six, at least six years now. Yeah. So yeah, it's not something that happens overnight. Absolutely. So, so tell me about your role um, at the Recovery Centers of America. What is your actual title? So I am a treatment advocate for uh, Berks County and Lehigh County. Okay. So if anybody has any questions about treatment, uh, they can give me a call. Uh, there, there are a lot of different tiers. And the, the, one of the biggest barriers, I think, for people to enter treatment is their knowledge of the process and what they're able to do. Um, so knowing what options are available to them and of course with the you know unfortunate business side is that there's different insurances that different places will take um, uh, there's if somebody has Medicare they would have to go to a specific facility connected to a hospital um, and that there's Valley Forge Medical Center and there's um, Excuse me, I'm drawing a blank here. Um, 
There's a, yeah, there's a couple there's a couple other facilities that you'd have to go through for that, mm-hmm. um, and there's places that would take county funding, and there's places that will take Medicaid. Um, RCA takes commercial insurances, so your Aetna's, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Cigna, Mental Health Partners, um, uh, a whole larger list, which I'd be you know more inclined to talk about as well too. And, um, in person if anybody had any questions but um what people go through financially is that they don't know what's available they're like well i don't have any insurance so what do i do mm-hmm. do i just tough it out or, or keep using and to those people uh, in berks county there's uh in reading task t-a-s-c uh, their number is 610-375-4426 uh, in order to be able to get signed up for any type of insurance or get county funding for treatment. Uh, they also work with the Council of Chemical Abuse or COCA and they can aid in also getting uh, approvals for finances in treatment as well. Um, and also relating you to TASC. Their, their buildings are kind of connected but for the people who don't have insurance absolutely go to TASC in Reading. And then those of you, those who do have commercial insurance, uh, there's a couple other areas. There's RCA um, and Adult Teen Challenge. There's also the Retreat in Lancaster, uh, Karen Foundation, which a lot of people are know about. And uh, so, so there's a lot. There's a lot of resources. And for for the audience listening. We're going to put JD's contact information in the episode notes so he can speak to all these different organizations and these opportunities um, that you can connect with him directly. Um, but I wanted to ask, are people, do you find that people are um, afraid or hesitant to make that phone call to start the process because it can be so intimidating? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was even difficult for me to to do that it was tough it's tough to get somebody to even just take a ride in the car being a passenger to do that it's very humbling and uh, you feel like everybody's gonna look at you with sad eyes as a patient or a liability or a scumbag or whatever their predisposed notion of who an addict or or somebody with an addiction or somebody with an alcohol issue uh, is going to be and so it sometimes it's it's easier for people to hide behind just the denial of it because they don't want to they don't want to go through that mm-hmm. and but yeah so it, it's understood and to know that you're reaching out to somebody who gets it it's it's almost like when you're when you're in active addiction what it feels like is that you just took a trip you just woke up into a different country and nobody speaks your, your language everybody looks the same your friends, your family, everybody looks the same, but they're doing the the voice of the teacher from Charlie Brown. You know, it's like, wah, yeah. wah, wah. It's like nobody hears you. Nobody right. understands. It's just, and it's so confusing and it's so aggravating to, to feel that because you can't understand when people say that they care or they love you because you don't know what that language is. Right. Uh, and when you call and somebody is on the phone, you can call us at 1-800-RECOVERY and somebody that the whole group of people at the Mission Center, they're so amazing. They get it and uh, they speak your language and they know and they understand and they've gone through it. 
and they know how humbling it is to do that and they're not going to pull any punches i mean they're they're i mean we're all on the same team yeah the the the, the judgment's not going to be there no, they're not gonna, again all, all the yeah. reasons why somebody might not pick up the phone absolutely um are just be completely breaking down but i would imagine for for some that that point where they need to make a decision that they want to better their lives, it probably has got to be one of the harder decisions they'll ever make mm -hmm. because they're comfortable with what they're doing, even though it's not good for them or the right thing for them. But to be able to pick up that phone has got to be one of the hardest things to leave, to leave something that you've depended on, for lack of a better word, for an extended period of time has got to be difficult. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it's it's that it's that child, you know. To you, it's your everything. It's your it's your delivery, you know, from from pain. And uh, to get rid of that, like you said, it's 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 daunting. But I mean, there's a lot of different reasons that people don't get treatment. They think that it's not for them. They think that it costs too much, or they can't afford it, or you know, and. You know, as far as RCA, we don't charge anything over what your insurance would charge you. And even say you do have a deductible, you know, we're not going to ask for that up front. We have something called FinPay, which is two years no interest financing. And say somebody can only pay, you know, a certain amount, you know, for however long afterwards, that's totally fine. We don't want to make the finances be an issue. Yeah, so, you don't want that friction there. You, no. want, you want somebody to get better. It's hard enough. Sure. It's hard enough. Sure. I mean, the the mission statement for Brian O'Neill of RCA is save one million lives, you know, at least. Mm -hmm. And uh, he is extremely gung ho and extremely passionate about just, you know, making sure we can help people get in the door to get treatment. Mm -hmm. I mean, he worked with Jay one on one, and he knows exactly what it's like to do the interventions, and he's seen the pain in the family's eyes, and he gets it. Mm -hmm. um, he just wants people to get better and the rest of us follow that same mission and we, we, that's exactly what we want because we see the we see ourselves in them mm -hmm. you know no amount of aggravation or defense is gonna shake us off because we know exactly what it's like to be that defensive mm -hmm. all right well we've been through quite a bit so far uh, but there's more to get into so why don't we take a break and we'll be right back with some more uh, information for the audience all right, everybody, welcome back into the Off the Top of My Head podcast. I'm, again, here with J.D. Stahl from the Recovery Centers of America. Excuse me. Uh, we just went through uh, quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> quite yeah. a bit. And, uh, and I know there's more information that you want to share because, uh, again, there's so much to this process. And although it can be intimidating, it's also reassuring to know that there is help there. There's somebody like you that they can directly connect to. There is an organization like the Recovery Centers of America, and there are resources for these folks who need help. So I know there's more information that you'd like to share. So, Sure. Um, you know, just some of the programmatic things. You know, one of the uh, issues or barriers to people to come to treatment is they don't want to be, you know, have their shoelaces taken away and treated like, a, you know, like they're, like they're a danger. They don't, they, they, they want to have a respectful environment. And they don't want to feel as if they're in a jail cell with, you know, you know, a sheet over them and, you know, really uncomfortable. And honestly, if, you know, I could show you, 
to talk about RCA, which you know I firmly believe in as a recovery facility, just because not even just the not even just the amenities that they have. Um, so for those on the podcast, Jay is showing me a uh, pamphlet here from the Recovery Centers of America, um, which I'm sure this information is available on the website too, absolutely, right? Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So so that website again, we'll put this in the episode notes, but the website is. Uh, recoverycentersofamerica.com slash Devon, D-E-V-O-N. Mm-hmm. So go ahead, continue to go through the pamphlet. Yeah, De- our facility in Devon is right near King of Prussia. Mm-hmm. Um, but an- another one of the barriers is that a lot of people, you know, myself included, just wanted to have, uh, feel as if they're, you know, they were respected and, you know, be able to wear plain clothes and, you know, and not be treated like like a patient basically and that's exactly what we kind of honor at our at our facility um, people that have that were in the think tank to come up with the philosophy of RCA and the building and the design and the all the amenities are from all the places around us that we're operating they're from the Malverns they're from the Karens they're from the retreats and we have brought them in with an open door policy to say what can we do to not only match that, but make the improvements. And we constantly ask people what they want and what's gonna make them more comfortable and what's gonna reduce the uh, barriers that they have coming in. So we're always changing the curriculum. And just like you know, some of our commercials say, we're always making sure it's, um, that, it's that it's tailored you know, to suit and des- you know, designed to, to fit everybody independently. Um, for that reason, the, the facility in Devon has a bunch of different neighborhoods. It used to be a senior living facility. So say you come in and say, oh, you know, I, you know, my thing's alcohol. I don't want to be around the same people for whatever reason. You know, we've heard this. I don't want to be around people that have been using heroin or meth or whatever. And uh, so we have different parts of the facility. And, you know, we have a different part of the population. We have our evolutions population, which is a separate part of the facility, a separate floor. Um, females are in a separate floor, and then males are on a separate floor for over 49, uh, and that's evolutions, and that's uh, 49 and over, or people that mainly have alcohol issues as an older adult. Um, the age range kind of we can we can work with, of course. Um, and they're in a separate part of the facility with different groups and different counselors. And we have a first responders program where people from military, fire, police, EMS, uh, they're in a completely separate part of the facility on a separate floor with uh, different counselors. And that, we think that's absolutely essential. Um, learning a lot about psychology and the background of those individuals in service is that they are trained to not show vulnerability to anybody at any time, mm. especially civilian. Um, so having people with experience, you know, um, that can get on that level and be a peer and not a civilian uh, is absolutely essential for them to be vulnerable enough to work through some of their issues, some of the things that they've seen that nobody else is going to understand. Sure and to talk about even some of the confidential stuff that, that they wouldn't necessarily be able to share otherwise. Um, so we have a separate part of the facility for those individuals 
And uh, in addition to that, we have another program, uh, P-R-I-S-E, or PRISE, and that is for people with multiple treatment episodes. It's a bit more advanced. There's a lot more in the curriculum or the meetings or the groups that are geared towards um, relapse, addressing relapses or, or trying to find those chinks in the armor that usually bring people back. Uh, the exceptions that I was talking to or alluding to earlier. Then uh, the, and everybody else of course is separated into male and female on separate floors. And so, you know, it's, it's a 230 bed facility. So 230 beds and because of the size of that, we have the opportunity and the ability to be able to specialize and we have two people on site full times that are able to speak about the 12-step program if somebody has interest in the 12-step program although RCA isn't all pathways to recovery you know um, whether for some people it's spiritually based for some people uh, they they um, like to go a different route and that's absolutely fine it's whatever works for them we have a full-time yoga instructor who also does Reiki we have a personal trainer on staff we have somebody there or two people there to work through if they have any issues with financing or if they need somebody to call to set up uh, FMLA through their work we do all that there if somebody wanted to come in you know that that minute that second or they just had a discussion at Christmas dinner and they want to come in it's like oh well I have to do this I have to do this we take care of it hmm. From talking to the, to, the, to the workplace and negotiating that to calling parole officer or probation if necessarily and sending in presence and treatment letters. We have somebody specifically there and, you know, the woman that does that, her name's Jane. She's absolutely fantastic. She'll go to court with you and help you through that process. Nobody's going to abandon you. I mean, we will walk you through everything that's going to make it easier because we know it's tough enough. Sure, You're, you've already made that commitment and that decision, and now, yeah, it's, you have the you have the, you now have the support. Yeah, and like I said, I I went to Malvern. It was a fantastic place, and I got sober there, and it was uh, it was great. And I know other people that went to different facilities as well, and everybody is just so impressed with what we do here at RCA. That's what I mean. That's what keeps us here. Mm -hmm. We're all family. It's a great place to work, but it's also something that you can believe in without feeling that you're just selling something mm -hmm. it's uh, you can totally get behind it and that's what makes it easier for me you know um, but not only saying that the, the the program's great and everybody cares they get together every day they talk about how to make it more individualized they talk about uh, as if you're one of their family and I noticed that just from working at the facility for two years that these people care about everybody that walks in the door as if they're their family or friend mm -hmm. And you don't see that everywhere. To some places, you're just a number. I, I, that's what I was going to say. There's, there's some facilities I know where you just you go and it's the same program for everybody, and mm -hmm. it's not a it's not a one size fits all because everybody's wired differently, right? Right. You know, chemically, yeah. we're all made up a little bit different. We've all had different experiences. Yeah. So, um, what are? I, I hate to go back a little bit, but I'm I'm it. curious about the phone calls. Mm -hmm. Right. So either when you were, I guess, when you were working, the what were some of those phone calls like? Okay. So some of those phone calls, um, 
there's a lot of people. Some people think that the most the people that are going to call are the are the people that need help. Seventy um, percent of families in America, seventy percent, all families in America have some sort of admitted substance abuse, admitted, or alcohol or other process addiction like gambling or sex or otherwise. Uh, most of the time, it's a family because they've hit their rock bottom before you know, the person using has mm -hmm. because they don't lean on a substance to escape and, you know, and, and get a break like the person using does all the time. So they're asking what, what's possible? What do I do? Um, yeah, they, they don't know their next steps. And when we offer, um, interventions at RCA too, um, whether they choose to go to us or not, it doesn't, you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. part of it. But a lot of times they're just wondering, what are the options? Can I plant a seed here? How like do what? I approach this conversation? What right. do I say to them? They don't want to go. And it's, that's probably the toughest spot because you're reaching somebody that's calling for help and they're not even able to help themselves. Right. Um, so are, are these phone calls, are, I would imagine they could be emotional. Like mm -hmm. somebody just at the at the complete end trying to help somebody else and they don't know where else to turn. Mm -hmm. I would imagine some pretty serious and heavy emotions come to play, right? Yeah, so, uh, it's, most people just want to be heard um, because they feel like all their pain and frustration speaking to something that can't hear them. Mm -hmm. Because, like I said, you're in active addiction. All you hear is wah, 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 wah. Mm -hmm. um, you're being blocked. And so they, they, they want to be heard, but they also want to know that there's hope. And there absolutely is hope. I mean, it's so much more than that, but it's so tough to see when you're, when you're, yeah. when you're you know, just riding the wave inside of a storm. Mm -hmm. So what else would you like to tell me about recovery centers or anything else that you've experienced? Anything else, any um, statistics you'd like to share with us at all? Uh, let's see here. So... Addressing treatment or addressing substance use, we kind of talked about the alcohol and the surprising part about that. Uh, the beginning of a lot of substance use, whether you're able to go to work or not, you know, occurs within the home. Some say, some would argue this is the substance, this is the use, but really it comes from uh, the, the desire to escape a certain situation or feeling. Um, what, what people usually end up starting on, there's a lot of prescription pre prescription drugs that get used in the home, whether it be accidentally or overly used, because the purity of a prescription opioid is incredibly, say, efficient to get high. Um, and it's comforting. And even though it's meant to take away physical pain, um, as we know, you know, as above, so below, and as physical, so mental and spiritual. You feel sp spiritually, physically, and mentally pain-free when you take a drug, a drug, or you drink alcohol. Um, it gives you that sense of cooling validation, mm -hmm. and it. It's basically, it's basically everything that you've been looking for. It's that salvation. And what it really comes down for me, what substance use uh, and addiction really comes down to is salvation. 
and they talk about it in church. They talk about it a lot of different places and use a lot of different words. But to me, salvation is everything. Salvation defined by Webster is taking somebody away from pain. Salvation, as we may look at it, is God or it's Jesus or, or Buddha or, or whatever. In that temporary moment, when you're hungry, a sandwich is your salvation, which is probably why they get you to say grace, to refocus mm -hmm. that point of salvation. Uh, at that moment, when you feel that hunger to say, this is from you, so I don't feel guilty about looking at this sandwich as salvation. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's the football team. Whenever it's a Sunday, that's our salvation. That's going to take us away from the pain, from temporary boredom or lack of, lack of purpose. It's going to make us feel as if we're on a team, and that gives us purpose. Mm -hmm. it's gonna, salvation is going to be a coat when you're cold. It's all these things that, that, that you, we can motivate ourselves in order to work harder to get. It's that joie de vivre, that, that, that burst of life, that burst of passion is salvation because it takes us away from thoughts that we're not good enough. And the most important thing about knowing these temporary sources of salvation is always to try to refocus them on your ideal version of yourself. Higher than that, if you want to call it God, you want to call it the singularity, the universe, whatever you want to call it, however you want to define it, it's the ideal. And following that ideal is going to give us these traces of our salvation, our purpose, our own true potential. It's running those extra steps after we've already ran a couple of miles. Mm -hmm. It's challenging ourselves that little bit further that we could have stopped, but we didn't. It's studying a little bit longer. It's doing that extra, going that extra couple of steps to prove to ourselves that we had it in us. And in those moments where we aren't getting any you know, external validation, the moments that we are able to validate ourselves by saying, yeah, I did it. That is that true feeling that isn't going to hurt when it goes away you know because we can find it again and the best part about it is when we go to find that again it's not going to make us broke it's going to make us better mm -hmm. that's our true salvation is that ideal version of who we are and who we want to be and to be able to go to treatment for a you know 30 days or however many days you go and to put down your bags and put down your phone and put down your worries and your cares and feel safe enough to get vulnerable to say who that person is again. Because we get so locked into feeling as if we owe parts of ourselves to relationships, to jobs, to society, that eventually we're just a Frankenstein's monster of other people's expectations and we lose ourselves. And because we don't want to face the fact that we're taking time and possibly even wasting our lives living as a monster for somebody else or other people, we hide that with distraction. Because to look at that is so much more painful than to go, to, go through life as a robot. Mm -hmm. But to have the ability to take a step 
back and put our stuff down and look at who we are and who we want to be and realize that there is hope, that's priceless. That's what saves people. What I, I'd be curious to see what my face looks like right now, and I'll tell you why. Because, uh, again, <laughs> you know, for the folks who follow my podcast, they all know it's a personal project of mine. And you know, I'm often the interviewer, and I'm often, I don't want to say providing the entertainment, but I'm providing the content for the podcast. I feel like I'm a listener here. I feel like I'm a listener. Like, what does my face look like to you as I'm as I'm listening to you? You look like you're processing some things. Yeah, I'm pro- I'm processing a lot. Um, it's, you know, I'm I'm thankful that you know it, this isn't something that has ever affected me. Um, it hasn't affected any of my family, to my knowledge, anyway. Um, but I'm just processing what it's like for other people and I'm processing what it was like for you because I, I really feel like I connect with people and I, I, I just, I, I'm, I have that genuine sense about me that I'm sensitive to other people's emotions and needs and, and wants and to hear your story is, you know, I'm just, I'm just listening, I'm just hanging on every word but then I'm, I'm thinking about all the other stories that are out there and all the other nuances that are in that. And, you know, I was asking you about the phone call. It's those phone calls and what that other person on the end of the line sounds like. And, and I know, I guess sometimes this, this can be a deep, dark place. But I think in the information you provided, you're, you're, to your point earlier, you're bringing hope. Mm-hmm. You're bringing hope to somebody and you're bringing hope to a situation. So I appreciate you being a guest on the podcast. Uh, this was one of the more difficult topics we've ever talked about on the podcast. Um, it was one, it was, like I said, I didn't do any prep for this, you know, so I didn't, I didn't want to go with any, you know, preconceived notions or um, expectations or, or what have you. So um, I appreciate your availability. I, I know we uh, you know, we're trying to schedule it, yeah. Uh, but it was all, all good, and uh, we're also recording here in Boyertown. Uh, we're in a very unique space called Studio B. Uh, it's a, a place in the community to celebrate the arts of all mediums, and we just thank them for their availability of the space. So if you're ever in the Boyertown area, yeah, certainly come to Studio B a great spot Um, you can look on the website they have rotating art shows that just again all different kinds of medium uh, painting photography you name it some of it local some of it not but just a special place Uh, and while you're uh, in Boyertown there's so many other great places uh, to go as well so JD thanks for your time today my pleasure greatly appreciate it I will put your contact information in the in the show notes so folks can reach out to you um, directly and I do hope that um, if my podcast audience is listening and there's something that is directly affecting you or directly affecting uh, your family, that you do reach out to JD. Um, again, I can tell you, I, I've known JD all of um, probably, what, less than an hour and a half now. And, uh, you know, you're extremely knowledgeable and you're extremely, uh, you're easy to talk to. So I'm sure others will find the same. So again, thank you for being a guest. Greatly appreciated. My pleasure. Thank Thanks. you very much. Thanks, everybody, for downloading this episode of the Off the Top of My Head podcast. If you would like, um, yeah, if you would like, (laughs) this is how much I'm into our conversation. Uh, If you would like to connect with the podcast, please email O-T-T-O-M-H 
podcast at gmail.com. That's O-T-T-O-M-H podcast at gmail.com. And until we connect again, all my best. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Off the Top of My Head podcast. Who will I interview next? What will the topic be? And where will I record the episode? Please subscribe to be notified when a new episode is posted on your selected listening platform. Off the Top of My Head podcast, a podcast about anything and everything.